When we think about the way most people have received, understood, and then reproduced the message, then it gives us a whole new understanding of the Great Commission, uh, making disciples, taking the message of Jesus to the entire world. This is First Person. Welcome to our program. I'm Wayne Shepherd, And today, Jerry Wiles explains what has become to be known as the orality movement. We'll explain what that is today. I'm glad you can join us for this conversation, which will begin in just a moment. Radio is definitely a part of proclaiming the gospel with a spoken word, and the Far East Broadcasting Company has been doing that for many, many years, reaching deep into some of the world's hardest-to-reach places with the message of God's love and salvation. To learn more about FEBC, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Also online, you'll be able to see the schedule of upcoming programs and replay any interview you may have missed, all at firstpersoninterview.com. And to post a comment or for additional information, use our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, perhaps you've heard the term used in missions today, the orality movement. Well, Jerry Wiles of Living Water International is our guest to explain what that's all about. For more information about Jerry and the orality movement, follow the links you'll find at firstpersoninterview.com. As we began, I asked Jerry to tell me a little of his own story. Well, I, you know, I grew up uh, the eldest son of a, a country Baptist preacher in North Arkansas, and uh, I joined the Air Force right out of high school, and, you know, I always had this desire and adventurous spirit to see the rest of the world, and so I, I was stationed in Japan and Pakistan and traveled in 30-some-odd countries during those years. And being a preacher's kid, you know, you you have to make a profession and you're baptized at a certain age, and I did that when I was about 12 years old. But I really didn't meet the Lord till I got out of the Air Force at the age of 22. So as a uh, teenager growing up, you know, I was involved in the activities. I knew it in my head, but I really I didn't meet the Lord till uh, I got out of the Air Force and then went to college and uh, a couple of a few seminaries and some other graduate uh, training and uh, was involved in business and uh, of course my military experience was really uh, good and uh, but I really had a a transformational experience of course when I met the Lord but um and then about 5 years later I had uh, another encounter and the Lord just uh, gave me a a new understanding of my life in Christ and and the work of the Holy Spirit and uh, really through uh, some key leaders and some well-known people that we would recognize that I just began to share the Lord with people and see um, see the Lord do some uh, amazing things and so I've been on that journey for uh, since then. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that drive to make Christ known because it really has characterized your life for a long time. Yes, well, you know, I knew in my head for a long time because. My dad, you know, I heard him preach all my life, and, you know, he, uh, you know, the seed of the Word was planted in my heart, but really it became alive uh, during the Jesus movement, during the uh, late 60s, early 70s, the Asbury Revival season, and, uh, you know, the first five years of my Christian life, I was active and worked hard, but saw little fruit, and uh, the Lord brought some people into my life. Uh, one was uh, Ian Thomas, and then Norman Grubb. Hmm. Uh, Seal Culpepper, Bertha Smith, a few, some people Boy, own up in years in yeah, those days. great but, names, though, great great memories of their ministry. And some of the uh, the Keswick people, Stephen Oford, you would know that oh, name. Oh, sure, so yeah. The Lord exposed me to some uh, some some new understanding and depth and breadth of, of what it meant to be uh, in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so 
that was a liberating transformational understanding, Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.27. So I began to share the Lord with people during those days, and, and as I tell people, I, I saw more people come to Christ just accidentally than I'd ever <laughs> been able to produce before on purpose. But it was the difference, <laughs> the difference in my own human activity and, and working uh, in the energy of the flesh, more or less, and then really seeing the dynamic of, of what, what Jesus wants to do in every believer's life because Christ is living in us and the same Holy Spirit that worked through Jesus 2,000 years ago is still active in the world today. Mm-hmm. So that put me in a new uh, journey and a, a greater desire and, and hunger and thirst for the Lord and, and reading the Scripture and, and having a better understanding. And So... Um, it just it's, it's continued to grow. It, it hasn't gotten old yet, you know. It's, <laughs> it never will. It never will. Every day with Jesus is better than the day before. Amen I mean, that, that really is yeah. a true statement. Yeah. Well, before we start talking about this movement in missions called Orality, uh, tell me about Living Water. You've been associated with this organization for a long time and now serve as President uh-huh. Emeritus. How how and when did that come yeah. into your life? Well, I came to Houston in 91 and um, uh, with Houston Baptist University, and I was with them for 12 years. And during those years, I got acquainted with the people who had started Living Water International back in 1990. And uh, I was recruited to serve as president of the organization and uh, came on staff with Living Water International in 2003. And Living Water, of course, drills water wells. We train nationals to construct and maintain water systems in Africa and Asia and Latin America. But we're primarily about the living water that Jesus talked about in John 4 and John 7. So we're about water and the Word. And the Word part, we better with better understanding, better statistics and studies now, we know that the majority of the world would be considered oral learners by necessity or by preference. Hmm. So I, I, that would be the people who can't, don't, or won't read or prefer to learn by means other than written instruction or print-based media. Yeah, so is this orality a new thing, or is this just the way it's been since creation, kind of? Well, it's actually a rediscovery of an old thing. It's, it's, a, it's the most effective ways that people have learned and communicated for thousands of years, but it's been neglected in the Church for the most part since Gutenberg for the past 500 years. But in modern uh, mission history, in modern Church history, about the mid-'80s, uh, there were a few people doing some things— um, New Tribes Missions and uh, some other mission boards and agencies that were doing more. And I actually got on this journey back in the mid-'80s. I came across a book at the U.S. Center for World Mission. Uh, It was actually a doctoral dissertation by Herbert Klim. It's called Oral Communication of the Scriptures, Insights into African Oral Art. It was written by a veteran missionary, um, and he pointed out that even though the United Nations statistics and UNESCO said that 70, 80 percent of the people of the world were literate. Well, every country had its own way of defining, measuring, and reporting, and even they admitted that their research was flawed. So uh, Herbert Klim was way ahead of his time, but I read that book, and I started thinking about I was with a literature minister at that time, encouraging people to read through the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, reading through the whole Bible every year. Yeah, there's nothing wrong well, with that. A, that's a wonderful discipline for the people who have Bibles and can read. But Herbert Klim pointed out that the majority of the people of the world were probably, probably 70% of the people of the world were oral learners, uh, illiterate, non-literate, or functionally illiterate. Now, instead of, in the mission world, instead of defining people based on what they can't do as being illiterate or non-literate, they're oral learners. Uh, they've just never had the kind of modern Western literate um, 
education that we've had, but many of them are very bright. They may speak eight or ten languages. But uh, understanding about oral cultures, oral tradition, and really understanding how the early church, how the gospel spread throughout the whole populated world in the first century, before radio and television, printed page, and technology that we have today. So actually, orality, the term means a reliance upon spoken uh, or non-written communication. could be drama. Uh, song and dance and poetry, proverbs. So uh, it's not necessarily just one-on-one, is it? No, it's not necessarily one-on-one. It could be it could be one-on-one small groups or it could be a large group. Of course, preaching could be defined as um, an oral method, mm-hmm. but often preaching is from a modern Western exegetical, homiletical, expository treatment of the Scriptures, which is good for a certain segment of the population of the world. But most people think differently and process information differently. Uh, and so a, a better understanding of oral cultures, oral traditions, we get it, the more we get into the, the depth of it, the more we see the significance and the importance of it. So you're not uh, looking down at all on the printed word and on literature and on, of course, the, the uh, translation of the, of, the, of the scriptures into languages, but you're saying that we've neglected this other part. Uh, not at all. All those things are important in the appropriate context, but to try to impose a modern Western literacy-based uh, model upon a oral culture, which is really more like the early church, really more like it was than when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. So when we do our training, we've done this all over the world, we say this is not to take the place of anything else you're doing that's working. But once they go through the training, they say, this is better than anything else we're doing because it just gives you an understanding of the power of simplicity and reproducibility, and realizing Jesus, uh, when he said, make disciples of all people groups, he didn't say all literate people groups, he said all people groups. So if we're going to be inclusive and reach the unreached, unengaged people groups in the world, many of them still have no written form, Uh, many of them don't have any scripture in their heart language or mother tongue. So we understand if we communicate the gospel that's appropriate to the receptor culture and the worldview that people need to hear it most, uh, that's important. So just making a few minor adjustments can make a major difference. So when we think about the way most people have received, understood, processed, remembered, and then reproduced the message, then it gives us a whole new understanding of, of the Great Commission Uh, making disciples, taking the message of Jesus to the entire world and to all people groups. You can sense Jerry's excitement about orality and making disciples, and we'll continue the conversation coming up on First Person. In cooperation with the Far East Broadcasting Company, we're now producing the daily radio program FEBC Today with Ed Cannon. When you click on the FEBC banner at firstpersoninterview.com or the banner on our new iPhone iPad app for First Person, you'll learn more about what you can do to assist FEBC in taking Christ to the world through radio and new technology. Learn more at firstpersoninterview.com or download the First Person smartphone app today.
My first person guest today is Jerry Wiles. Jerry is President Emeritus of Living Water International. And Jerry, I don't know if you have an official title, but you certainly are a proponent of the orality movement. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. What uh, Simply define, what is the orality movement? And is it really becoming a big part of missions today? Well, uh, a number of mission leaders and church leaders are saying that orality is probably one of the top five trends uh, and most important breakthroughs in uh, in modern mission history. When we think about the people of the world, uh, it's not enough to proclaim the gospel. People need to hear it, understand it, be able to respond to it, and reproduce it. So reproducibility is very important. So the more we understand the study, how the church started off. And when we promote the orality training that we do, we do an orality training workshop. It's an introduction to contextual Bible story. There are many different streams of storytelling and storying. But we do a simple introduction. We call it a low barrier entry or an easy on-ramp to the movement. We want to get people on the journey. And so we have uh, this basic training with five stories with the appropriate pre- and post-story discussion and dialogue. We can give a community or a tribal group a simple, systematic narrative theology of the most important things they need to know to have a relationship with the living God and to become a reproducing follower of Jesus. Now, when we say that, that's a pretty bold statement. By the Mm -hmm. end of the day, people see, yeah, that can happen. So you're giving them the framework, and then they use that framework to build the story and tell the gospel story in their own words. Correct. And uh, contextualization is important, understanding the worldview, and uh, really uh, asking the question how much they need to know, how much and what do people need to know, to respond to the gospel, really, a basic thing is what is the gospel? <laughs> it's the good news, or it's the good story. And when we think about preaching the gospel, of course, the, the word preach in the English comes from several different languages, and several different words in the original. But it, you could sum it up as to communicate. It could be to tell, to um, announce, to herald, there's several different words. But when we sum it all up to communicate the good story, the good news, to everyone, and then to make disciples of all people groups. What does it mean? What do you have to do to be a disciple? What is the church? So asking questions and coming to some some basic understandings of some uh, foundational truths that we learn from Scripture. So a lot of times we have to rethink and cut through some of the uh, church traditions that's mm-hmm. built up over the past 2,000 years, getting back to the essence of the gospel, the essence of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, one of the leaders in the International Orality Network said that the gospel started off like a ping-pong ball, now it's like a bowling ball. <laughs> so we've got to peel back. If it's going to be reproducible to any place in any people group, we've got to peel back some of the traditions, which may be very good in their, in their context. Mm-hmm. But over the past uh, 500 years, you know, a lot of many good things have come, but it's not necessary and essential when we think about what does a church look like? a body of believers, a community of faith based on the early church, what we understand from scriptures, and really focusing people on the life and the spirit and the teachings of Jesus. Well, I find this all very fascinating. I really do. And I know that there are other organizations who are picking up on this. I know Crew has Story Runners, for instance, which is a whole program. And uh, we'll have information on our website about what you're doing and what a few others are doing as well, Jerry. But you've been around the world. You've seen this working. Tell us, how is it working? Where is it working? And, and give us those pictures. 
Well, I can tell you what I'm aware of and what we're doing, but uh, in Living Water International, we've been on this journey for a few years. I, my journey with it goes back to the 80s, but we've been doing this, and we've pollinated from a lot of different uh, streams within the storying movement, orality movement. Uh, and the uh, actually, out of uh, Amsterdam 2000, they formed a uh, World Bible Task Force, which in 2004 became the International Orality Network with 30 organizations, and now that's grown to more than 2,000 organizations. Wow. But I, I serve with the uh, Advisory Council and the leadership team. Avery Willis had asked me to be involved several years ago when he discovered and, and learned about my uh, background and history with it. But we have put together just a simple one-day introduction. Uh, we learn from a lot of different streams, but we wanted a simple way to, rather than a semester-long course or a two-week World Bible School, we wanted to have just a, a sample. So we've, we've done this, and we've seen amazing results. We've trained that we know of, and we can account for probably more than 44,000 people in this basic uh, introductory training. Now, so this is going around the world. Yeah, yeah, we've trained in more than 20 countries, and now we've trained people that have trained in other countries and other places. So it's highly reproducible in the essence of what we do in the introductory training. And then we introduce them to other resources. So uh, we work closely with Story Runners and and many other organizations that are part of the International Orality Network. And uh, we've now created, uh, a group of us have created the Global Orality Training Alliance. So this is part of ION, International Rallies Network, but focused on training. And training, of course, in our thinking is really disciple-making. But it includes leadership training. It includes various expressions of orality methods that can be used in the marketplace, business admission, used in communities, small groups, cell groups, disciple-making cell groups. So there are a lot of different uh, applications. Once you get into it, of course, we've got a global learning community so we can discover best practices or most fruitful practices, and then share that with others looking at the context. And a lot of what we find are commonalities. So what works in uh, West Africa or North India or some Central American country, there may be some commonalities that will work in churches here. So we're doing more churches, more training with churches in the United States now. Okay. So we're bringing our learning from a global, rapidly reproducing church planting and disciple-making movements and, of course, looking at the early church. Yeah, we call that the bridge back. People. Yeah, the bridge back from other yep. cultures back to our own, and it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, but there's evidence it's working. It, the gospel is being shared and responded to because of this. Yes, and we've got, we can document now a lot of you know, demonstrated results. And it's, still, it's hard to measure, have a metrics to measure impact, you know, and all of that. Of course, of course. But when we go back into these areas and we get feedback, I can give you many examples of that, but one— was a West African country. We had trained about a thousand people about three years ago. I was back there again last year, and out of we talked to fifteen people that had been a part of the training two years earlier, and we were asking them to give us more specifics on how they were using the stories and the methods. And they were saying, "Well, many people are coming to Christ. We're training many people." So we finally got down to through a translator asking more specifics. So we went around one by one. How many people have you trained? How many people have you seen? come to the Lord that you can know of, you can you know, estimate. So out of that, uh, we, by their testimony, those 15 people had seen 791 people come <laughs> to the Lord 
from the training that they'd gotten before, using the stories, using simple stories about Jesus, asking questions, making sure they understand what it means, how it applies to their lives. So we could assume that the other 985 or so people had similar results to those 15. So the numbers are amazing, and we don't want to get into over-exaggerating or or overselling, but um, but what we can document when we go back to these places, you know, they're not sending us emails every day and telling us what's happening. Mm-hmm. They're oral cultures, so you have to go back and do ask some questions and do some surveys to really get our our our, our minds around the impact that it's having. But we do know it's it's reproducible, and we do know when we go back. And now we're training trainers, so we're really focusing on spending more time with fewer people, and we have an orality training for trainers program where we take them deeper and train them how to train and then introduce them to other resources. Well, Jerry, I'm wondering, as we have a couple more minutes here, I'm just wondering, what is our role in the orality movement? We may not be, uh, you know, in an overseas context, but uh, obviously this is something for all of us, isn't it? Well, it's working here, too. And the more training we do here in our uh, context and in our churches, we have a lot of isolationism and individualism. And this really breaks down the walls and the barriers and creates more relationships and communities. So we've seen some really evidence of renewal and mobilization that's taking place in churches in the United States. But pastors and mission pastors and and mission leaders in the United States get interested initially because they're sending people on short-term mission trips. But once they see how it works, they experience it, they see how it works in our churches here, it works with outreach, uh, many different applications to working with migrant populations, working with uh, prison ministries or children's ministries or nursing homes, but really just friends and neighbors, the way we can uh, engage them in conversation and using stories. It's really more effective than pulling out some track or going through some propositional presentation to tell a story. You know, you tell uh Find out what their story is. You listen and learn. You tell your story, then you bring God's story in. So it's a more natural, more non-threatening way. And so people who go through the training often start, you know, sharing it. And we focus on learn a little, practice a lot, implement immediately, tell the stories often. So we have lots of testimonies of people who start leading people to the Lord for the first time. It just works. And uh, Steve Douglas, who is uh, president of Crew, said that the the, the best uh, demonstration or case to make for orality is that it works better than anything else. But we say it's better experienced than explained, so we focus on demonstration, participation, and explanation. So our training is very participatory. We use no literature, no technology. So what we do could be done under a tree in Burkina Faso, can be done under a bridge, can be done on the side of the road, or it can be done in an auditorium, can be done on a university campus, seminary class, or a church, you did anywhere. Our guest has been Jerry Wiles, President Emeritus of Living Water International. Jerry has been explaining the orality movement and communicating the gospel. And if you want to follow up on what you've heard today, visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com. That's firstpersoninterview.com, where you'll also find the schedule of what's coming up in the weeks ahead. And if you desire to go back and re-listen to today's conversation with Jerry, it's archived on our website. And you can use our iPhone app now. With the app, you can actually download any first person for listening at your convenience. An Android version will be released soon, but you can receive the iPhone version now in the App Store. 
This weekly program is produced in association with the Far East Broadcasting Company, a ministry dedicated to proclaiming Christ to the world by radio. More information about FEBC is at firstpersoninterview.com. Next week, our guest will be Pastor James Ward, the author of Zero Victim. I hope you'll join us. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.